Lord, we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from you. The rain comes from you. A hundred years ago, we'd be a lot more cognizant of that. Most people uh, lived off the land, and there, there wasn't a sophisticated irrigation system. They'd plant that seed, and then they'd kneel, and they'd ask you to send rain. Um, we know that you control all these things. And it's, it's when we live in uh, prolonged times without rain, those times we call drought, that we are really aware of the fact that we are so dependent on you. So we thank you for sending that last night. We thank you for all that we enjoy. Uh, quite, quite frankly, we are spoiled people. We have been given so much, so much. It, it, it is staggering. And, and the amazing thing is there is so much more to be had. It just never stops and it never ceases. And there's always more and there's always better. And we look around and compare to those who have more and who have better than we have, and it riles up our hearts. When we live in a country of such great affluence and prosperity, we have to pray that you would watch over our hearts and keep us in check because it is so easy to get caught up in this stuff. We, we want to be very careful to be thankful for what we have and to realize that it all comes from your hand. We don't take credit for it. We just simply give thanks for it. We could very easily be living in Haiti or in the Sudan or one of these nations where uh, dictators use war and hunger as weapons and uh, think nothing of starving people and children. Those are not our circumstances. So tonight we have grateful hearts. Lord, as you know, we're working through this book that is intensely practical. Uh, we're just basic guys here tonight. Nobody here above average. We're just trying to make our way through life uh, under your leadership. This, this stuff tonight is extremely practical. And if we don't get it, there can be great danger that threatens us. So help us to get it. Help us to absorb it. This is the time of the day where, where we're tired. Um, we, we started early today, and we've been going strong ever since, and, and we start lapsing. But help us to get by your spirit what we need. We'd ask you to do that for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not easy to get a uh, PhD, no matter how smart you are. It took Albert Einstein a number of years to work his way through the classes, and then even more years to write his dissertation. He finished his dissertation, turned it in. A couple weeks later, he received it back, 
And he was told that it had been rejected because it was too short. It was too brief. Einstein sat down and read through that document, that extremely long document that, that he had written. And he read through it a second time. He added one sentence. He resubmitted it, and it was accepted. Now, you could say, you could say, now Einstein is one of the great geniuses in all of history. But a case could be made that that was an example of something we would call hubris. To be told that your dissertation is too short, and to have the guts to add one sentence and turn it in. That might be called hubris. Hubris is something we're vaguely familiar with. We don't use the term a lot. Uh, what is hubris? Hubris basically is the opposite of humility. We've been in James. We're in James 4 tonight. If you have your Bible, you might turn there with me. In James chapter 4, basically the entire chapter revolves around the concept of humility. Uh, the great model of humility is Jesus. In Philippians 2, it speaks of Jesus, although he existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. So he laid aside his privileges. Humility, there are several definitions we could give for humility, but, but humility, we could say, is taking the lower place. Humility is preferring someone else over yourself. That is what Jesus did when he came to earth. He preferred what was best for us over what was best for him. Uh, he laid aside all his privileges, uh, was born of a virgin in a trashy manger where cattle were raised, um, went through the sufferings and the degradations leading up to the cross, and, and if nothing else, we should thank Mel Gibson for showing us what it was like on the way to the cross, the, the sufferings that he uh, bore before he ever got onto that cross. If you remember that, his, his back was like raw hamburger and his face was beaten beyond recognition. And then he went to the cross and he who was out without sin died for us who were locked up in sin. Uh, Jesus did what was best for us. That's humility. He took the lower place. That's humility. And James, in James chapter 4, oh, by the way, in Philippians 2, talking about Jesus and his example of humility, in Philippians 2, it says, Have this same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that example of humility that we see in Jesus, that's the kind of mindset that as Christian men who are walking with Christ and, and having a desire to mature and grow in Christ, that should be what we are shooting for, his humility. But what's in our heart and what we are constantly pulled into is hubris. What is hubris? Hubris really, um, you can trace it back to the Greeks. Hubris is, is an exaggerated self-pride. Uh, hubris is an arrogance. Uh, hubris is, is not only an exaggerated self-pride, and a exaltation of self, but within that usually comes, as you exalt yourself, 
there is a purposeful degradation of someone else. That's hubris. And we see it everywhere. So we've got the, uh, we've got the playoffs going right now. We've got the hockey playoffs, which, which the stars are no longer a part of. We've got the NBA playoffs, and if the Mavericks don't get with it uh, and get over their hubris, uh, this squat little team with no stars is going to take them to the cleaners. It's playoff time. Which got me thinking today. Uh, you watch all these different sports. You, you know, there used to be something called sportsmanship. Do you remember sportsmanship? I remember having coaches talk about sportsmanship. I remember sportsmanship being emphasized. I remember them talking about sportsmanship. Uh, it's been a long time since I've even heard the word sportsmanship. I can't remember the last time I heard it. It's basically gone in professional sports. Um, in the Greek culture, there was a story about a warrior who defeated uh, an enemy in battle and then stood over him like a cock crowing. You know what that reminded me of? And demeaned him. It reminded me of professional sports. There's great hubris. The exaltation of self and the degradation of your opponent. That's not sportsmanship. Sportsmanship's a whole other ballgame. Now, I'll tell you why I like hockey. And I do like hockey. First of all, they take care of business on the ice. Now, there have been some excessive things. I'll grant you that. I've talked to some guys who are professional hockey coaches, and they've explained to me uh, the internal conduct that takes place on the ice in a hockey game. Um, you usually have your, your scores. You guys are pretty flashy, pretty quick, pretty good. Well, you, you know, what will happen is the other team will send out their enforcer and their brute and try to just pummel that sucker. Well, you can't let that happen. You got to protect your golden boy. You got to protect your, your Gretzky. You got to protect your, your Madonna. Uh, so somebody, you know, takes excessive liberty with a guy like that, you got to defend him. Now, in hockey, as it was explained to me by an NFL, NFL by an NHL coach, is that uh, you drop your stick and you drop your gloves. That's the gentlemanly way to handle things. That's, being, that's good sportsmanship in hockey. Now, when you take a, a stick, maybe you saw the highlights this week from, the, I think it was the Calgary goaltender that took that and just ran that stick in that guy's groin. That is not sportsmanship. Um, uh, I think one of the stars, if you saw one of the, the game before last, from behind, one of the guys just took a stick and slashed him in the knee. They'll, they'll handle that next season. But it's to be handled with sportsmanship. And in hockey, that means you drop your stick and you drop your gloves. Because the manly thing to do is just to go 
man-on-man, fist-on-fist. Sometimes that people in the church get uncomfortable with that. But I've always enjoyed seeing guys after the church service in the parking lot going at it, haven't you? A couple deacons out there dropping the gloves. Oh, yeah. It's just healthy, you know? It just, it just resolves stuff when you move on and go out and have dinner. Now we're kind of kidding, but that's how they handle it in hockey. That, that, that even, there, there's a way to handle it and, and have sportsmanship. Now, the interesting thing about hockey, if you saw the stars lost the other night, there's something they do in hockey that I haven't seen in any other sport. At the end of a series, they all line up, and they go, and they might have beat the crud out of each other during the game. I mean, but what do they do? Shake hands. Now that's sportsmanship. There's no hubris. There's no demeaning your opponent. There's no room for that. It's kind of refreshing. Uh, you could say that that's uh, that you could say that sportsmanship at its core is is really the expression of humility. Now let's remind ourselves of where we've been and where we're going. Uh, this idea of humility is all the way through James four, and if you're in James four, you recall that where we left off was right at verse ten, and here's what he says. He says. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In, in, in other words, as he's summing this up, this is the attitude that ought to be in our lives. Not one of hubris, not one of self-exaltation, not one of taking the higher place and doing anything you can do to get there. Um, it, it's, it's amazing in order to get to the higher place, in order to be promoted, uh, in order to look out for number one, it's amazing what people will do. People falsify resumes, uh, which is really kind of foolish because you're going to get found out. Um, How many, let's go back to the sports world, how many times have we seen the hubris in the sports world of falsifying a resume? Well, several years ago, there was a coach that was named head coach at the University of Notre Dame, football coach. Now, that's pretty much the pinnacle in college sports. But he lasted about three days. And why was that? Because he had the hubris to falsify his resume. Oh, I graduated from this school with this degree. And he didn't, and he was found out. Now, we find this all all the time. There was a manager in baseball a number of years ago that would motivate his players by telling them stories about how he fought in Vietnam and against the Viet Cong and, you know, these different firefights he was in and da-da-da. Somebody checked years later. He was never in. He was in the reserves, but he was never in Vietnam. He lived off that for 10, 15 years. Where is he today? He's out of baseball. It's amazing what people will do to get to the higher place. The scriptures say, now now note this, note verse 10 again. It says, humble yourself. In other words, take the lower place. And then, when you do that, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. See, when, when the Lord is really Lord of your life, you leave your life and you leave your um, career and you leave your promotion and you leave your advancement to him. You humble yourself. 
you serve. Uh, you work and you work hard, but you're not always trying to promote yourself. You're, you're not always doing whatever it takes to get to the top. That's, that's, that's an amazing thing how many people grasp that concept and see nothing wrong with it, doing whatever it takes to get to the top. There's no room for that in Christianity. So we work, we work hard, we trust God with our futures. A promotion, according to Psalm 75, says not from the east, not from the west, nor from the desert comes promotion or exaltation, but promotion comes from the Lord. So we do our work in our careers to the glory of God. We work hard. Uh, we're not always looking to the next level. We're serving him. Colossians says, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. I'm not saying we don't have a desire to advance, but I'm saying that desire to advance and to achieve has to run within the banks of Scripture. When you get outside the banks, anything goes. So there's character and there's integrity, and there's a sense that I'm serving you, and at the right time, I'll trust you to advance me. And by the way, when he's ready to advance you and when he's ready to promote you, nobody can stand in your way. Nobody. So you don't have to falsify things. You don't have to make yourself appear greater than you are. You don't have to always be talking about yourself. You don't need to do that. You let the Lord raise you up when the Lord is ready to raise you up. I think I may have said this in here I, I can never, I, you know what happens? I speak too many times in different settings, and then I can never remember what I said where, and so I'm always concerned. I get in here, and I'm going to make some point that I just made last week, but I didn't make it last week. It's just, a, I'm just, I just live in constant tension, Bob. You wouldn't have any medication I could take for this or anything, would you? M&Ms, that, that won't work, but... Uh, and I went off on such a tangent, I forgot my original point, which apparently means it wasn't all that important to begin with. But uh, it was something I do remember. At some point, somewhere in the last 90 days, I made a comment about the prayer of Jabez. The prayer of Jabez is in the Bible. Nothing wrong with praying it. A lot of folks are doing it. You know, it's that, that book's been very helpful. Bruce is a great guy. I love him to death. Personally, I don't pray that prayer, personally. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying I don't. And the reason I don't, personally, the part that asks God to expand, where it says, and please, Lord, expand my borders, I never ask God to expand my borders. And I'll tell you why. I don't know if I can handle it. I honestly don't know if I can handle it. I'm having trouble handling what I got now. So why would I want expansion? Expansion is not always the issue. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's the obvious thing. Again, you've got to understand, I'm talking about me personally. See, there's this mindset. It always has to be the next. It's always got to be the next. It's always got to be the next. Well, maybe I'm not ready for that. Maybe it's too early for that. Maybe God wants to actually prune me and cut me back and give me less for a while. I don't know. He knows. So what do you do? Just humble yourself. Just say, Lord, I want to serve you. You know, I want to be a better husband. I, I, I want to be a better dad. 
I, I want to do better with my temper. I want, you just humble yourself. And you acknowledge your weakness, and at the right time, see, when God sees guys humbling themselves, I'm going to tell you something. He loves that. He loves that. Because that's a sign of maturity, and that's a sign of growth. Now, this humility and hubris thing, humility is what we're after. What we got to fight off all the time in our own hearts what we got to fight off is hubris. You've got to fight it off, and I've got to fight it off. Because our natural inclination is to exalt ourselves, and he's going to get, once again, extremely practical. So verse 10, humble yourselves under the mighty, in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then he's going to hit two issues that we are all, all prone to that when we express these, these are the antithesis. These are the opposite of humility. And quite frankly, they're symptoms and expressions of hubris. The first one that he mentions is judging another brother. Verse 11. So, so he's going to give me two things I want to be aware of. The first one is judging. Verse 11. And I want to read it from 10 so you see the flow, because it all flows together. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. In other words, God. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Now, we've got to make a distinction here. This is really important. There are other sections of Scripture that talk about judging sin within the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, you have a man living in sin with his father's wife. And Paul says, the pagans don't even do that. Remove the wicked man from your midst. Um, this, this has no place in a church. This man is, is claiming to be a believer, but he's living with his father's wife in sin. That's just beyond belief. So Paul says, remove that wicked man from your midst. And then if you read through the context of five, Paul says, now what do I have to do with judging outsiders? We don't judge pagans for being pagans. They're pagans. You expect them to act like that. But then Paul says this, but those in the church... We judge. You go to 1 Timothy 5. When a leader in the church gets involved in sin, unconfessed sin, it says don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses and then rebuke him in the presence of all that the rest may be fearful of sinning. That's a judgment. It's known as church discipline. You read Matthew 18. If a brother's in sin, you just let him coast. You have a friend you're close to, and you see this guy starting to make some bad choices and going down a path, and you can see where he's going. Do you just let it slide? Not if you really are a good brother. You'll go on approaching. Why? You want to save the guy. You want to help. We all have blind spots. We, we need to be friends that, that love one another to look out for each other. So James, uh, uh, Jesus said in Matthew, that if your brother sins, you go to your brother 
and you talk with him. And if he listens to you, you've won him. Great, that's the whole point. That's an act of church discipline or judgment, if you will. Now, if he doesn't listen, what did Jesus say? He said, take two or three with you. Have you ever had someone do that? You've got mutual friends, you say, hey, I'm concerned about Tom. He keeps having lunch with this gal. He's not married, and it's not his wife. He keeps having lunch with this chick. And I went and talked with him. He wouldn't listen to me. So I need you and Tom to go with me. Oh, good. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that. (laughs) Nobody wants to do that. But you know what's interesting in the context of Matthew 18? In fact, why don't you flip over there with me? Let me show you something interesting. There's a verse that we use quite often. And we think it applies to something, but it really applies to something else. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the fact of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, that's pretty serious, and obviously that doesn't happen in 20 minutes. That's a process. That's a process. But the whole point of this is to win someone back. Now, the two or three... You know, if, if you go to the guy and he doesn't listen and you go to another brother or two and you say, look, we need to go talk to him, nobody wants to do that. Notice the context. Notice down at verse 20. It says, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Gathered together for what purpose? In the context, to go and talk to a brother who's in sin. We always use that at prayer meeting when nobody shows up. Right? Well, Lord, you said in your word, how are two or three are gathered together? Hey, hey, listen, he's he's there when one's gathered together. He's in our midst. Is he not? But you see how that applies? So you say, wait a minute, James said don't judge your brother. Well, obviously, we're talking about two different things. Oh, and by the way, in Galatians 6, why don't you flip over there? Just go over to your right. And if you get to... Revelation, you've gone too far. You'll find it. You get past Corinthians, and you're going to find Galatians, and you look at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. See, when we go to a brother that we love and that we care about, here's something you got to do. you got to look at yourself first. Flip over to Matthew 6. We were just in Matthew. Yeah, I know, but I forgot this. So let's go back. You say the same principle. You'll see the same principle in Matthew, um, actually, uh, chapter 7. Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by the way you judge you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the Douglas fir that is in your own eye? Isn't that interesting? We're real good at saying, oh, that guy's got a speck of sin. But if you've got a giant sequoia tree, 
in your eye, something's wrong. So obviously what Jesus said, here's what the scriptures are saying. When a brother's in sin, you go to him privately, you talk to him. But before you ever do that, you check your own life. You check your own heart, knowing full well that you're entirely capable of what he's doing. You see? So what about James now? James is saying, don't judge. Well, James is talking about something different than this. What James is talking about is not the judgment of sin on a brother's life. He's just talking about the quick, off the top of the head, judgments of other people's motives that we don't agree with and we don't like and thinking we know what's going on in their hearts. That's what he's talking about. And that is a completely different issue than what Matthew 18 is talking about. Is it not? Now let me tell you what concerns me about this James passage. I think I'm very prone to doing this. In fact, I don't think it, I know it. I think I'm quick to judge people's behaviors and think I know their motivation. I am. And I gotta watch this like a hawk. I make assumptions. Sometimes I get upset with my wife because I assume something that I think is in her heart. Now, I'm just being honest with you. Now, do I like that when someone does that to me? I'll guarantee I don't like it. But what did Jesus say? By the standard which you judge is the standard that you will be judged. It's just amazing to me. And, and you know, I'll tell you what else is interesting to me. When I've done this, when I've seen someone or there's been a situation and there, there, there's been a behavior and I think I know what motivation that person is doing that behavior out of, it's amazing to me how often within 24 or 48 hours I'll see me doing something very similar. Just amazing to me how that happens. You probably never experienced that. But I experience it all the time. See, what he's talking about, and let's go back to James 4. What he's talking about here on this judging a brother, see, we make these flippant, quick judgments, but we don't know the facts. We don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. There's only one who knows that. We're not the great judge. Christ is the great judge. And he knows the intentions of the heart. He knows the motives of the heart. You say, oh, no, I know their motive. You don't know their motive. See, we think we do. But we don't, because we can't see inside the heart. Now, now I, I'm not saying there aren't, there, there aren't situations where there is a, a series uh, a, a, of consecutive sins that obviously show you what's going on. I'm talking about snap judgments. That's what I'm talking about. Um, years ago in New York City, there was a firm, and they had a tradition. And their tradition was as many companies do, for Thanksgiving, they would give everyone just a, a, a nice big 20-pound turkey. Uh, well, a lot of companies do that. But they had a tradition that they kind of kept under their hat. 
uh, they would usually hire four, five, six people a year. And whenever they would hire um, a, a, a young intern or a young associate, single male, they had something they would do. There was one of the gals in the office uh, was a great artist and a sculpt, did sculpture and that kind of stuff. Well, what she would do, everyone would get a turkey. She would make a turkey out of paper mache, put it in a box. It'd be colored just like all the other turkeys from, you know, it looked like the turkey. Put some things in the bottom to kind of weight it down, about 20 pounds. And uh, what they would do every year, if they had a new hire, a guy who was single and who was a male, big party, everyone gets their turkey, they'd hand this guy the turkey. And he never, and the, it was all funny because the young single guy didn't know what to do with the turkey. Didn't know how to cook it, didn't need it, it's just him. Well, that's what happened one year. They give this guy the turkey and so, you know, hey, thanks, what am I going to do with it? He makes his way to the subway, sits down, he's got his briefcase, he's got this 20-pound turkey in a box. It's kind of cumbersome, the place, the subway's crowded, you know, people are pressed in. This guy's sitting next to him, blue-collar guy, you know, he's got his hard hat and his lunch pail, and he, he runs the, 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 the box of the turkey into the guy's knee and apologizes. The guy says, no sweat, and they start talking, and he goes, hey, I'm sorry they gave me this turkey for, you know, for Thanksgiving. And he goes, oh, that's great, you know. He says, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Oh, you know, my wife and kids were all together, you know. How many kids? Oh, five, you know. And, oh, that'll be great. Your wife cooking a turkey? The construction guy says, no, we're not having turkey this year. Kind of rough year. I was laid off most of the year and just got hired on. In fact, he said, I just stopped at the butcher, and he pulled out a brown rat. He says, we're having hamburger for turkey. Hamburger for Thanksgiving. And the, and the single guy says, you're having a hamburger for Thanksgiving. He goes, yeah. He said, that's all right. No big deal. We got a lot to be thankful for. Single guy is sitting there. And he said to the construction guy, he said, hey, you know what? Let me tell you something. I got this 20-pound turkey. I don't even know how to cook it. There's no way I'm going to eat it. Tell you what, I'll switch it. You give me the hamburger, I'll give you the turkey. <laughs> and the guy says, you're kidding. He goes, no. No, I'd just like to give it to you. And the guy was overcome. I mean, he just, it really teared him up. Monday morning, the guy walks back into his office, and they're all waiting for him to razz him about the papier-mâché turkey. And he wouldn't find out until they opened it up, and they said, hey, hey, and they start joking. He goes, what are you talking about? And they said, the turkey. He opened it. He said, I never opened it. You didn't open it. No, I gave it to a guy whose family didn't have a turkey for Christmas. They said, you what? <laughs> and for the next several days, they let him leave the office early and go to the subway station to find the guy. And he would stay for an hour or so just hoping to find this guy and apologize to him. Now, put yourself in the mind of the construction worker who was so touched by that act of that young single guy when he got home, told his wife, and she opened up the turkey and found it was paper mache. What do you think he thought about the guy on the subway? And he was absolutely wrong. This is why we've got to be real careful. 
Now, the second thing he talks about is boasting. Boasting about our businesses and our career paths. Now, see, this James guy, this guy meddles. This guy will get right in your face, he'll drop his stick, he'll drop his gloves, and he'll hit you in the chops about six times in three seconds before you know what's happened to you. Watch, I'm still in Matthew. Let's go back to James. Watch the next thing now. So the first, see, so judging, judging like that is not an expression of humility. Judging like that is an expression of, of hubris. You think you know what, what is in somebody's heart. Now, watch the second thing, beginning with verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And we all, as American capitalists, say, what's wrong with that? Well, is there anything wrong with that? I mean, obviously, um, you start a business you don't start it to fail. You start a business, and you don't start it to go bankrupt. Now, let's read on. And let's, let's pick it up again at 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Now, here we go. Here's the kicker in 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. Uh, this word vapor can mean smoke. Uh, it can mean steam. Just steam. Your, your life is just, just the steam coming off the broccoli. That's what your life is. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You boast in your hubris, in your self-exalted importance. All such boasting is evil. Well, let's, let's take this apart a little bit. Uh, th this, what this is addressing, hey, listen, we start a business, we want it to work. We want it to be successful. I, once again, there's a fine line here on this, guys, and there's a fine line. And the fine line is simply that we have our plans and we have our goals and we have our objectives. And what we like is for all of our goals and all of our objectives to be met and for us to check them off, and then we feel good about life. And... Um, that makes us happy. That makes us have a sense of accomplishment and well-being. Nothing wrong with making plans. Proverbs 16 says this, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You had that experience? Uh, you made a plan? And you know, planning is a good thing. Jesus said if, if you build a structure 
and you don't plan and you don't think it through, you're not too smart. We got a plan. Uh, nothing wrong with planning. But, but what he's talking about here is once again is a hubris. It's planning with hubris. It, it's, it's planning making assumptions. It's, it's the self-made man attitude that I have these abilities and I have these gifts and I have this history and if I've done it once, I can do it again. That's not humility, that's hubris. Um, Deuteronomy 8.18 says this. It says, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Why have you been able to accomplish what you've been able to accomplish? Have you tasted some success? You know why you've tasted success? Because he gave it to you. He gave you the skills. He gave you the ability. He gave you the providential meetings and intersects with other people at right times who provided financing that were there for a sale when you needed a sale that told someone else. And no, it just, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Nothing wrong with making plans. Nothing wrong in the world with making plans. But we have to make our plans. I think it was Corey Ten Boom who said something to this effect. When God gives me things that I enjoy, I've learned to hold them very loosely. That way, when he takes them away, it doesn't hurt as much. Now, there's a great perspective on life because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, this guy here that's being mentioned in verse 13, he's operating on hubris because he's, he's making great assumptions. And you've heard that old adage that when you assume, you've heard it. I think that's in Proverbs 12, isn't it? And if you haven't heard it, see me afterwards. Um, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a wisp of steam. How do you know? So David Halberstam, great writer, great writer, Big guy, about 6'5", about 240. Good athlete. Prolific writer. Um, you read any of his stuff, any of his sports books? He's doing a book on the greatest, called The Greatest Game. And it was a game about the 1958 NFL championship game between the Colts and the Giants. How many of you guys remember that game? Okay. Good. We'll come and visit you in the home this week. <laughs> I remember getting home from church and my dad turning on that game and, it, and they were just going into it. We, we caught it at the end of the fourth quarter because we lived in California. And they were just going into it. That was the game that made the NFL. And the Colts won in overtime. Sudden death, Alamichi took that hand off and took it in. Uh, that was quite a game. So he's writing a book on this. And so Halberstam is in uh, San Francisco and he's going to interview Y.A. Tittle. And uh, some of you young guys are going, who? Y.A. Tittle. Played at LSU and played for the Niners and then played for the Giants. Great quarterback. Guy was bald from the time he was 12. And when he was 22, he looked like he was 60. And one of the great pictures in NFL history 
his, his tittle when he played for the Giants with his helmet off and blood running down the side of his head, and he's on his knees on the sideline. So Halberstam is going to uh, uh, interview Y.E. Tittle in Palo Alto. Yeah, he's going to do this book, and the guy's in good shape, and he's 73, and you know, he's, they're driving down to Palo Alto. Boom. They get blindsided by a car in an intersection. He dies instantly. He had no clue. We're just steam. We're just steam. So, so here's what we do. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You know what I'm sort of coming to in my life? I've been pondering this. When I make out plans, goals or objectives, when I make out plans, you know what I'm kind of leaning to? I'm, I'm kind of leaning to writing them down in pencil. That's kind of where I am on this thing. Nothing wrong with plans. Nothing in the world wrong with a plan. You ought to have a plan. Just don't depend on the plan. Don't love the plan. Don't trust in the plan. I think I told you this a while back, but it's been six months. How would you remember it? So I'll tell it again. About two years ago, I was redoing my financial plan. I remember it was on a Thursday night. And I got, I was pretty excited about it. And I figured out, because, you know, my kids are getting out of college, and, you know, they're 52 years old now, and they're graduating, and it's kind of nice, and, you know. So I won't be paying tuition. I don't have this. And I'm, I'm reworking it. And, I, you know, all right, we pay the house off, we do this, and okay. So I'm working this plan. And I, and I you know, I, I got a little excited. I remember it was a Thursday night. And I had it all lined up. And if we do this in seven years, we can do it in nine years, and then we got this, and we'll get that off, and then this. We, I mean, it was, it was symmetrical. It all fit. I had color codes on it. It just, it really looked good. And it was like it was all set up. And, you know, it's sort of like you get that all set up, and it's sort of like, you know, you show it to the Lord. Hey, Lord, look at it, you know, and he goes, oh, that's really neat. <laughs> I mean, that plan worked for about three weeks. And then we had some kind of big setback. What? What went out? What went out? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. See, nothing wrong with the plan. Just put it down in pencil. The disappointment isn't as great. Don't do the color-coded crayons. Those will break your heart. But just get a number two pencil and kind of sketch them out on a napkin and put it in a drawer. Because here's the deal. The mind of man plans his way. But the Lord directs the steps. Now, he's got a plan. He's got a plan. And part of his plan, this is interesting to me, part of his plan is, as we've said a hundred times in here, is as men, is to mature us in Christ and to move us away from hubris into humility. 
So the question is, how does that happen? How do I move away from hubris, because I've got that and you've got it and it pops up in my life. How do I, how do I move away from that hubris approach and, and that excessive um, arrogance that oftentimes is subtle, but it's still there. How do I move away from that hubris into humility? Well, there's an antidote to hubris. And the antidote to hubris is humility. Catch this. That is only learned by suffering. That is the antidote to hubris. It's no mistake that James talks in chapter 4 all about humility. But he starts the book off with suffering. He starts the book off with trials. Because if you never have trials, and see, when we have trials in our lives, and we talked about this, the scriptures, uh, Peter said, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that comes among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Well, I'm suffering. I'm having a hard time. You think that's strange? You think that's unusual? You think that's out of the ordinary? No. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come among you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. This isn't strange. This is normal. You're supposed to suffer because this is how you mature and this is how you grow up. So James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete. The idea there is mature, lacking in nothing. In other words, that's how you go from hubris to humility, is through affliction and hardship and difficulty, which none of us want. But that's the path, and that's the antidote, and that's the cure. I've been reading this little booklet. Um called Behind a Frowning Providence by John J. Murray. He's a pastor in England. I'm going to give you a few shots out of this. This is a little gold mine. I didn't even know I had it on my shelf because it's so small. It was lodged in between two big books. I don't even remember buying this thing. But it's been in there for years. Um... It's been in that section for at least seven years, and I've never, I don't remember this book. I started reading it this week. I'm going to give you some shots out of this guy. This is good stuff. He said, this guy's a pastor. He says, for 30 years of my Christian life, I neither understood nor was particularly drawn to the book of Job. I like this guy. Well, why would anyone in their right mind be drawn to the book of Job? The book of Job was about suffering and hardship and difficulty that won't go away. I'm not reading that book. And we never read the book until we get into hardship and suffering and difficulty that won't go away. And then we learn to love the book. For 30 years of my Christian life, I never understood, nor was particularly drawn to the book of Job. But along with a particular time of suffering in my life, which later you find out is when his 10-year-old daughter came down with a terminal disease, and then she died at the age of 13. Then he went to the book of Job. Along with a particular time of suffering came the help 
to understanding it. Martin Luther had a similar testimony. Luther said, affliction is the Christian's theologian. Did you get that? That's when you start learning theology, is when you're afflicted. Luther said, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. And then he gives this poem that is just priceless. Listen to this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I then walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Now, isn't that true? He then goes on and he says, sufferings can bring a new dimension of fruitfulness into our lives. Now, you know what? If you read this fast, you go right by that. Let's say that again. Suffer. How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you guys want to be used by God? We wouldn't be here if you didn't want to be used by God. All right, so let's listen to that again. Sufferings can bring a new dimension of fruitfulness into our lives. In other words, you want to be used? Then you're going to suffer. Then he quotes C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher of England in the last, not the 20th, the 19th century. No, the 20th. 1860 to about 1880-something. Listen to this. The guy, uh, this guy writes, we often see sorrows leading to increased usefulness in the lives of God's servants. C.H. Spurgeon said, God gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. Now, if you know anything about the British Empire, some of the greatest warriors come out of the Scottish Highlands. And uh, a few months ago, I mentioned that book to you, How the Scots, what was it, How the Scots Changed the World or Invented the World or something. They talk in there about the Scottish Highlanders and the kind of men those guys were. They were brutal warriors, brutal. And even into the late 1800s, when one of those Scottish Highlander clan guys would come into town to get supplies, they cut a wide swath. You just got out of their way because those guys had a hair trigger, and they carried those big claymore swords. And there's more than one occasion, someone they thought was looking at them in a wrong way without respect, they just put, took out the claymore and cut the sucker's head off. They were great warriors. What does Spurgeon say? God gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. Spurgeon went on and said this, I do not know whether my experience is that of all of God's people, but I am afraid that all the grace I have got at any of my most comfortable and easy times and happy hours might be worth a penny. But the good I have received from my sorrows and pains and grief is incalculable. Then he quotes Thomas Boston. I just ordered Thomas Boston's biography this week. They don't even keep it in print. I mean, keep it in the stores. It's about this thick. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it. He was a pastor from 300 years ago. Not a real famous pastor. Because uh, in his church in England, uh, he, he averaged 23 people. Uh, except on Easter Sunday, he got up to about 42. 
he wouldn't have done well in Dallas. Thomas Boston never put on a pastor's conference. See, the guys that put on pastor's conferences have big churches, and they got 28,000 people, and then all the guys from small churches come to get depressed because they don't have those gifts, and they'll never pull that off. But Thomas Boston labored in this little tiny church for years. Average of 23 people. But Thomas Boston, I bought two of his other books this week. See, 300 years later, this guy that labored among 23 people, they're still buying his books. Thomas Boston said this, It is the usual way of providence with me that blessing comes through several iron gates. You get that? You ever try to go through an iron gate? Not, not, not the little one in a garden, a big iron double gate. They're hard to open. That's usually the way blessing. He's saying blessing comes through affliction. By the way, here's a little shot on Thomas Boston, who had a ministry, a pastorate, averaged 23 people a Sunday. Um, Boston suffered from poor health. His children in their early years were sick and eventually died. His wife was crippled by mental illness. He dealt with very difficult parishioners, even with 23. <laughs> he engaged in all kinds of church wrangles. He labored in relative obscurity, yet out of it have come writings that have brought untold blessings to multitudes. Remember John Newton, Amazing Grace? John Newton wrote another hymn called Prayer Answered by Crosses, by Affliction. Listen to this. Yes, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Speaking of God. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my plans, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I now employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Sometimes we love our plans more than we love God. And that's the problem. A couple other nuggets. He, uh, he quotes throughout this little booklet William Cooper's great hymn, God Works in a Mysterious Way. And is it not true that God works in a mysterious way? A couple of stanzas from that hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, sometimes when we lay out our plans and we have our objectives and our goals and they're all color-coded and we're all excited about them, and then our plans don't work and our plans don't happen, what happens to us? Let's be honest. We get upset with God and we don't understand why he's not blessing us. We just don't understand. In fact, it seems like he's working against us. What does Cowper say? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. 
behind a frowning providence, there lies a smiling face. Spurgeon said, when we cannot see God's hand, we can trust his heart. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. This doesn't make sense to me. You know his heart. You can trust him. All right. Here's another one. Am I boring you guys? All right, listen. This is a hymn Cowper wrote. He was a buddy. He was tight with John Newton and with uh, William Wilberforce. Uh, Cowper dealt with uh, depression all of his life. Today, he would be called a manic depressive. Probably had unbelievable mood swings. This guy knew the Lord, loved the Lord, had a deep relationship with Christ. He tried to commit suicide at least three times because of the violent mood swings in his life. Here's what he wrote. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. He's not done. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. Why would you need courage? Because your plans aren't working out, and your kids are sick, and your wife is mentally ill, and people are against you, and you can't seem to get ahead, and your plans have been destroyed. Now listen to what he says. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast. Up, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Two more. And remember, he lived back in England when England had the great villages of weaving cloth and tapestries. And All right. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly, shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. If, uh, if you've ever seen these tapestries that have been woven by great craftsmen, Unbelievable detail and design. When you go to Churchill's family home, uh, Blenheim Palace, the largest palace in all of England, uh, Churchill was born there. They have these unbelievable, huge tapestries, some twice the size of that screen, hanging throughout the castle. Took years to put those together. Have you ever seen a tapestry from behind? It makes no sense. There are loose threads. It's just thread. Different colors. Makes no sense. No design. No pattern. Just absolute chaos. Nonsense. That's the way life looks to us when the plans we make don't turn out. And we get resentful. And we get upset. And we don't understand what God is doing. But there's going to be a time when he's going to flip it and let us see. And that's going to change everything. 
One more, just one more, if I can find it real quick. Comes from Christopher Morley. Get this. I had a million questions to ask God, but when I met him, they all fled my mind, and it didn't seem to matter. That's all we need to know. He's our God. He's in charge. And when you understand that, that pretty much takes care of the hubris. And we bow, and we accept his plan, and we wait for his goodness. So we do that now, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being the model of humility, for coming to earth. You who were without sin took our sin upon you. And you died in our place as our substitute. You satisfied the Father's wrath. So it didn't come on us, it came on you. May we have this same mind in us that was in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.